American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this podcast, Pramila Nadison of Queens College, City University of New York, offers New York City teachers a critique of the traditional civil rights narrative. This talk took place on April 22, 2010 at the Graduate Center. The Civil Rights Movement raises fundamental questions, I think, about how social change occurs. Um, scholars who are writing about the Civil Rights Movement have examined the impact of ordinary people uh, on shaping the world around them. Uh, in the 1960s, ordinary people, people who were teachers, who were domestic workers, who were welfare recipients, who were uh, farm workers, had a profound influence on things like government, how, how, how government operates, on the boundaries of political discourse, on legislation and court decisions, and I think on the very meaning of political participation. Okay. These were not judges, they were not lawyers, they were not politicians or the heads of corporations. And I think when we think about it in that light, it's quite astounding the degree to which relatively powerless people uh, were able to affect social change. So, so I think you're absolutely correct in terms of thinking about how the civil rights movement offers a model or a lesson for other discriminated or uh, oppressed groups in this country. So the 1960s offers insight um, in thinking about how American history unfolds, but also how people can empower themselves and shape the world around them. So it's not just a lesson in change over time. It's not just a lesson in overcoming racial barriers, but I think it's also a lesson for your students uh, that what they do matters, right? And that the choices that they make often can and do make a difference. Um, over the past 20 years, there's been quite a lot that's been published on the history of the Civil Rights Movement. There have been a number of local studies that have looked at communities, Durham, North Carolina, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Oakland, California, Birmingham, Alabama. There have been a number of biographies that have been published, organizational histories. These new studies have not only given us a more textured view of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, but they've helped us rethink some of the very basic assumptions about the Civil Rights Movement. And, these, um, and this is reflected in a shift in language. A lot of scholars, uh, people like Clay Carson, Robin Kelly, uh, and Vincent Harding, um, have argued that we shouldn't be using the term Civil Rights Movement any longer. They've suggested that we use the term the Black Freedom Movement. And I want to ask you, what does that reflect to you? Why do you think that might be significant? What are they trying to tell us when they're suggesting that we move away from the Civil Rights Movement towards calling this the Black Freedom Movement? Okay, so the Civil Rights Movement implies top-down, right? implies the power of government officials, whereas bottom-up, whereas black freedom, implies a movement among ordinary people. If we talk about civil rights, we could be talking about gay or lesbians. We could be talking about the women's movement. We could be talking about uh, the Mexican-American movement, right? It, in, in some ways, it's a much broader term, right? Uh, whereas black freedom movement refers specifically to the African-American struggle for freedom. Let's, uh, let's talk for a moment about 
the traditional timeline associated with the civil rights movement. And I, I know you talked a little bit about the Montgomery bus boycott this morning, right? The traditional narrative associated with the civil rights movement, and I'm talking specifically about African American history here, and I think your point is a very good one about how civil rights could be uh, applied to many other groups as well. Uh, but in terms of the African American political struggle, that narrative of the civil rights movement usually begins in 1955. If you pick up almost any textbook, right, it will say the civil rights movement began in 1955 with Montgomery. Montgomery was the first successful mass boycott. As you know, tens of thousands of people participated in it. Um, Montgomery leads to a court decision after about a year, uh, a court decision that outlaws segregation on public transportation in Montgomery. It also propels important leaders such as Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy in, in, into the national spotlight. Right? So the Montgomery bus boycott is actually considered a very pivotal moment in the history of the civil rights movement. And this early period, the late 50s to the early 60s, is considered really the golden age of the civil rights movement, right? A period of racial harmony, a period of a unified political movement. Um, it also spawns other political movements, right? There were students who organized in this period. There were women who organized. Uh, there was an anti-poverty movement that emerged. Um, and many of the traditional histories suggests that these movements emerge out of the civil rights movement, right? One example you might know of are two women, uh, Mary King and Casey Hayden, who were involved in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, became very disgruntled and upset with um, the sexism in the movement, wrote a position paper on it, and eventually went on to form what we now know as a radical wing of the women's movement, right? Tom Hayden, who founded Students for Democratic Society, he was first involved in the civil rights movement in the Deep South. So this early period of the Civil Rights Movement, I think in, in many ways, um, is considered the model of organizing the model of social change. Yes, this is not my narrative. <laughs> this is the narrative we read in many textbooks. And my point ultimately is going to be that there are so many pieces that don't fit into this narrative. Okay, that's the point I'm gonna make right now. It is absolutely a big piece, and that's why I think we kind of need to discard this understanding of the civil rights movement. Because Malcolm, and not just Malcolm X, there are dozens of other organizations and individuals who don't fit this model. The Black Panthers, well, in some ways they fit better than Malcolm X does. Uh, so let's, let's move on to the radicalization. So this traditional narrative, not my narrative, this traditional narrative suggests that in the mid-1960s, in 1965 and 1966, there's a radicalization of the movement, okay? Uh, that organizations such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality, do you guys know those organizations? I'm using those, okay. The Congress of Racial Equality, for example, uh, both uh, expel their white participants, right? They turn to black power. They become much more militant in their ideology and in their practice. Um, they begin to call for self-defense, right? Uh, moving away from nonviolence, and they begin to address economic issues. There's a shift away from seeing the South as a primary problem in terms of race and thinking about race or racism as a national problem. The term black power was first used by Stokely Carmichael at a march in 1966, the Meredith March. Um, 
Now, why do you think this radicalization occurred? And this is something I'm sure you've probably taught, right? Why? Why is there this shift in 60, 65, 66, um, away from the nonviolent multiracial organizing that characterized the earlier period towards this black power, armed self-defense uh, uh, phase of the movement? Yes? Absolutely. I think the passage of the of the both acts, the sixty four Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five, uh, were absolutely critical in terms of how and why people began to shift their thinking. If you think about it, in the mid-1960s, there were a number of urban riots around the country, right? Harlem in 1964, Philadelphia in 1964, Watts in 1965, Newark and Detroit in 1967, right? And that alerted uh, many civil rights activists and organizations that, hey, despite the passage of these two landmark laws, right, there's a lot of discontent in the inner city uh, among African Americans. So it, it forced people to think about the more intractable problems of poverty, right? And to realize that these laws, while important, are not going to address those more deep-seated issues. Uh, but in addition to that, um, there was a tremendous amount of violence that civil rights activists in the South faced, nonviolent civil rights activists, right? And you all know about the three uh, civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi in 1964. They are just a few of them. In addition, there was Medgar Evers, Viola Louisa, who was a white housewife from Detroit, uh, James Reeb, Herbert Lee, and the list goes on and on. There were a lot of nonviolent civil rights activists who, um, who uh, were murdered who were murdered or beaten. And so this relentless violence led many civil rights activists to become very disillusioned with the strategy of nonviolence. This traditional narrative okay, usually ends around 1966. Well, I'm sorry, 1968. Why 68? That was the year that uh, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, right? Um, it, uh, it was the year that uh, Robert Kennedy was, ex was assassinated. Okay. Many people view this, the later period of the civil rights movement as one in which, especially after 66, when there's a real splintering among social activists, right? Their offshoots was the formation of the Black Panther Party, uh, SNCC uh, be becomes much narrower in terms of the kinds of work it's doing. Um, and many people argue that there's in fact a polarization, the erosion of the middle ground, and a polarization between people on the left and people on the right which leads ultimately to the election of Richard Nixon in 1968. Um, race becomes much more, again, it's this argument about black power, right, about racial identity. A move away from this idea or this notion of a multiracial alliance 
towards racial equality, right? But racial identity becomes much more important, especially for African Americans, the idea of black power, the idea of black-run schools, things like that. So you're absolutely right. That's one argument that's made about how and why we see the splintering in these divisions um, and the erosion of a unified movement. Um, now, I think, I think as, as the gentleman in the back said, I think this, uh, this traditional narrative is flawed in so many ways, right? Martin Luther, I'm sorry, Malcolm X is certainly one piece that does not fit very well into this traditional narrative. Um, and the shift towards uh, the term, the black power movement, okay, has emerged because historians have tried to grapple with the weaknesses of the traditional narrative. Um, the new chronology that they propose suggests that there is, in fact, a long civil rights movement. And I think you talked about this term this morning, right? A long civil rights movement didn't begin in 1955. In fact, as you probably know, Montgomery was not the first bus boycott, right? Uh, the first bus boycott in the post-war period occurred in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I think I have a photograph here. This is a photograph from Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1953, uh, where local activists began to organize a bus boycott uh, in order to challenge segregated seating on the city buses. Um, the city council, uh, the boycott lasted for eight days before the city council agreed to open seating except for the first and last rows. The first row was reserved for whites and the last row was reserved uh, for blacks. So clearly there, there, has, there were other protests, there were other boycotts in the post-war period. But scholars have also looked not just at the roots of civil rights protests or black freedom struggle protests in the early 50s, but have, have gone all the way back to the 1930s and the 1940s, suggesting that the real roots of the civil rights movement lay in that period of social protest of the 1930s. Um, just one example of this is Ella Baker. Um, how many of you have heard of Ella Baker? Um, Ella Baker uh, was an important activist in, from the 1930s all the way through the 1970s. And she was a, really a link between the earlier and the later generation of activists. Baker was involved in community organizing in Harlem during the Great Depression. And she brought this, with, this experience with her to, um, to the Civil Rights Movement where she served as executive director of King's organization, SCLC. Um, in the 1950s, and she was also an advisor to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which, which initiated the sit-ins in 1960. Um, as, as her biographer Barbara Ransby, Barbara Ransby puts it, Ella Baker was one of the most important behind-the-scenes activists in this period. Again, you know, drawing that link between the 1930s and the 1950s has become very important in thinking about the roots of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, the new chronology of the black freedom movement suggests that 1968 was not an end, right? That in fact there was a tremendous amount of political activity that occurred in the 1970s, okay? There were community organizations that organized around welfare rights, around health care, around public health, around wages. Um, 
so scholars are increasingly, are increasingly looking at that political activity. 1973 was when the National Black Feminist Organization was formed. Um, and Shirley Chisholm ran for uh, president in 1972. Her election was extremely important in mobilizing communities around the country. So we have to, I think, look a little further and to think about uh, ways in which, which political activism didn't end in 1968, but actually continued uh, beyond that. Um, the Black Freedom Movement also suggests a new geography. Okay? If uh, the traditional narrative suggests that the, that the civil rights movement begins in the South and after 1966 begins to focus on the North, okay, the Black Freedom Movement suggests, well, actually there was organizing that was occurring throughout the country in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I'll talk about this when I talk about the welfare rights movement in a few moments. So, so it sees the political struggle as national rather than regional. The black freedom movement narrative also presents us with a new meaning of freedom. Okay. Um, I think the civil rights movement suggests a campaign for formal legal equality, right? for legal rights, for civil rights. Right? Um, there were many organizations in this period that were not only focused on civil rights, they were engaged in issues of housing, economic justice, health care, anti-war, welfare rights. And so I think to truly understand the nature of political activity in this period, we have to broaden our lens to think about the multiple issues that people were involved in. It also suggests that that clear or strict dichotomy that we see between the nonviolent southern-based movement led by King and the uh, struggle for self-defense that was waged by the Black Panther Party in places like Oakland was not actually accurate, okay? That even in um, uh, the earlier period, there were activists who advocated armed self-defense. Um, Robert Williams, who you might have heard about, Robert Williams was an NAACP activist who lived in North Carolina. Um, and he, from a very early period, advocated armed self-defense. Gloria Richardson is another one. I think you have a, f a photograph of her in your packet. I also have it up here. This is Gloria Richardson, uh, who was the head of the Nonviolent Action Committee in Cambridge, Maryland. Um, and despite the name of the organization, Gloria Richardson was not purely nonviolent. <laughs> she advocated armed self-defense. Um, both uh, Richardson and Williams um, were not committed to nonviolence as a philosophy, but rather as a tactic. Uh, people like Williams and others were engaged in nonviolent protests, uh, but they were living in the midst of a very violent, racist Southern society. And sometimes they saw violence as the only appropriate response. Right, as a measure of self-defense. So for them, as Tim Tyson, who's a biographer of Williams, has said, for them, violence and nonviolence worked in tandem. So this uh, new scholarship uh, that's emerged over the past 20 years suggests that the black freedom movement was a lot uh, messier and a lot more complicated than a very simple linear model would lead us to believe. Um, I think that traditional narrative of the civil rights movement is not inaccurate. Okay, but it is narrow. Uh, it really developed out of an understanding of the political evolution 
of key political players, national leaders in particular. Uh, mainly around Martin Luther King, right? King, we know, became radicalized in 1966. He took a position against the war in Vietnam, which was a big struggle for him after, in, in 67. Uh, at the moment of his death, uh, he was in Memphis, Tennessee, organizing sanitation workers. So he had, himself had come to see the importance of looking at race in national terms, had come to a place where he began to see the importance of dealing with economic issues. SCLC, his organization, um, started a, uh, a program called Operation Breadbasket in Chicago in 1966, headed by Jesse Jackson, and he, uh, he launched there a Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaign. Again, thinking about, economic in, uh, thinking about economic issues and how to empower the black community in Chicago. And I think SNCC and CORE are also part of this, this trajectory, the radicalization in the mid-60s. So I think the traditional narrative uh, is really a reflection, if I can say so, of a great man view of history, right? Uh, so even though we talk about and understand the civil rights movement as mass-based, as evidence of power of the people, much of the framing of the civil rights movement has often occurred around the work of very identifiable and well-known male leaders, people like Martin Luther King, A. Philip Randolph, Stokely Carmichael, and Huey Newton. They have, to a large degree, shaped that narrative. So I think that the shift away from civil rights uh, towards black freedom also enriches our understanding of the role of gender uh, in the civil rights movement. There were literally thousands of women who were involved in the civil rights movement, and many of them provided very important uh, leadership roles. Um, women like Ella Baker, Johnny Tillman, Septima Clark, Diane Nash, Gloria Richardson, Asada Shakur. How many of you use those names in your classrooms? Um, there's still not enough, uh, but there is some literature about them and about their role in the civil rights movement. And I want to talk uh, in particular about two influential scholars who have written about the role of women in the civil rights movement. And I think um, their books are on the bibliography that you have. Um, one is Charles Payne, uh, who wrote a book called I've Got the Light of Freedom uh, about the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Uh, Payne also wrote an article uh, which he titled Men Led But Women Organized. And Charles Payne argues um, that we need a more complex picture of the civil rights movement. That yes, we do see men in these very important leadership roles. The men were the ministers after all, right? But he asks us, well, who were the church members? It was the women, right? So if you're talking about a church-based Southern civil rights movement, he suggests we have to look at the role of women in the church and the role they played in carrying out the work of organizing. So men might have been at the podium, but women were doing the organizing work, the day-to-day -day organizing work. And we can see this in Montgomery as well, right? In the Montgomery bus boycott, um, King was the head of the Montgomery Improvement Association. He was a reverend, had a very respected position in the black community. But a lot of the organizing, who, who uh, Xeroxed the leaflets? Who created the leaflets? Who handed out the leaflets, right? Who were the ones who decided not to take the bus and to walk to work? Okay, it was largely women. Women were the base of the Montgomery bus boycott, and women were the ones who made it happen. And I think you, you spoke about that already today. 
Um, the other author I want to talk about is Belinda Robnett, uh, who wrote a book on women in the civil rights movement and argues, um, and she came up with this term, argues that women were bridge leaders, okay, uh, who were community leaders who were essential to the success of any community organizing in the South. So a, a bridge leader is somebody who uh, connects local communities to the national organization. Okay? So SCLC, SNCC, and CORE, she argues, would not have been able to carry out their voter education projects or to mobilize communities for protests or marches without the help of these influential community women. These were women who housed the civil rights activists, who told them who to speak to, who, who told them when and where to have their meetings. Um, I think both Payne and Robnett um, uh, have made extremely important contributions to our understanding of the civil rights movement. Um, they both acknowledge the work that women have done that's been invisible, that's been unrecognized, and that's been behind the scenes, but they both see women as supporters, as the grassroots base. Um, and I don't want to diminish this. I think it's important to give credit where credit is due, uh, but I also think there's some new emerging perspectives on the role of women in the civil rights movement that might uh, make us think differently. And that is, I would argue that women were not just supporters. They were not just behind-the-scenes activists, but they were leaders, intellectuals, and theorists in their own right. So we shouldn't be asking, how did women contribute to the civil rights movement? We should be asking, how did women's participation change the meaning of black freedom. And I want to turn to the welfare rights movement uh, to help us think about some of these issues. I want to introduce you to Johnny Tillman, who uh, I never had the chance to meet, but I came to know intimately when I wrote my book on the welfare rights movement. Johnny Tillman was born in Scott, Arkansas. She grew up in a sharecropper's family. Uh, she prided herself on picking 300 pounds of cotton a day. She was also a mother of six, uh, and after she moved to Los Angeles in 1960, uh, she worked in a commercial laundry where she was a union organizer uh, to support her family. She went on welfare in 1961 because of a physical ailment, uh, which made it very difficult for her to work, but also because she was having some uh, concerns about her teenage daughter. Tillman had worked her entire life. As I mentioned, she worked as a sharecropper, she worked as a domestic, and she worked uh, in a commercial laundry both in Arkansas and in, um, and in Los Angeles. But being on welfare was eye-opening for her. Tillman spoke about growing up in poverty, about working as a domestic, about living in the segregated South, but nothing had prepared her for the shame and disrespect she experienced as a welfare recipient. Uh, the lack of privacy, the bureaucratic red tape, the probing questions by caseworkers. Uh, it was more than she'd ever dealt with before. So in 1962, um, she went around and door knocked in her housing project in Los Angeles, uh, got other women uh, on welfare uh, to help her found the, uh, a group called ANC Mothers Anonymous, which was a welfare rights organization. Tillman eventually became the chairperson of a national organization called the National Welfare Rights Organization. Uh, she was an ideological powerhouse in that movement. 
Uh, she advocated an expanded concept of rights that included economic justice, black empowerment, feminism, and self-determination de self for women on welfare. The welfare rights movement, and it, uh, the National Welfare Rights Organization began in 66, it ended in 1975, was a multiracial political movement of women on welfare uh, who demanded better treatment from their caseworkers, protection of their civil rights, and higher monthly benefits. Nearly everyone who was in the movement was a recipient of aid to families with dependent children, which was a program for single parents um, and their children. The movement peaked in the late 60s uh, and had about 30,000 members in it, although the supporters might have extended out to about 100,000 who, who supported them or followed them. Uh, and it folded in the mid-70s because of a shifting political climate, fewer resources, and some internal conflicts. Now, relative to other social movements of the period, the welfare rights movement has actually received very little scholarly attention. As I said, it had about 30,000 members, which is about what SDS had at its peak, Students for a Democratic Society, but we have dozens of books and articles and memoirs and films about SDS. It's always interesting to me why so few people know about the welfare rights movement. How many people in this room had ever heard of the welfare rights movement? <laughs> I have one student here. <laughs> um, uh, why do you think that's the case? Why do we know so much about SDS? Why do we know so much about SCLC? Why don't we know anything about the welfare rights movement? I mean, I think despite what we would like to believe, uh, historical scholarship is not an accurate representation of what actually happened. Right? That's the first thing we have to recognize. It's about interpretation. It's about somebody deciding that one movement is important and, other, and another movement is not so important. Uh, it's about somebody choosing to write about something and choosing not to write about something else. Um, I think part of the reason why the welfare rights movement has been erased from political and scholarly memory is in part because of the sources. Right? These were poor women on welfare who didn't take very good notes when they met, <laughs> who didn't archive things as well as students on a campus did or as well as SCLC did that had a staff of 25 people. So part of the reason I think why we don't hear much about the welfare rights movement is because of the lack of sources. We have many more sources for other kinds of movements. Middle class activists document things a lot better than working class or poor people do. Um, the welfare rights movement also didn't have the same access to channels of power and publicity to access, um, and access to media as did other kinds of organizations like the Black Panther Party, like student organizations, like women's organizations. Um, I also think um, that the welfare rights movement disrupts the ne nice, neat narrative we've created that we all want to believe about the civil rights movement. right? Um, it began not in the mid-60s when, when we think that everyone started being concerned about poverty and started thinking about, uh, about inner-city communities. The local groups uh, of the welfare rights movement actually began in the late 50s and the early 60s, and it's a movement that continues on well into the 1970s. Um, I think that the quest, um, that the erasure of the welfare rights movement um, raises questions about the way in which the marginalization 
uh, of poor black women the welfare rights women fought against actually continues to shape the way we remember their struggles. So why is the welfare rights movement important? And what can it teach us about the black freedom movement? The welfare rights movement advocated an expanded notion of rights. Okay? Their slogan was, welfare is a right. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Quite a radical concept. Welfare is a right. Voting, not voting. <laughs> not access to public schools. Welfare is a right. They advocated civil rights. Um, in fact, uh, basic civil rights of welfare recipients were often violated on the state level. Uh, states, Im states implemented things called the man in the house rule or substitute father rule, okay? which was if a recipient was dating a man or involved in an intimate relationship with a man, she could be cut off welfare with the presumption that this man should be supporting her and her children. Right? Um, so the man in the house rules often led to the various, very notorious midnight raids where caseworkers would show up often in the middle of the night, search under the bed for a pair of man's shoes or the bathroom for a razor or an extra toothbrush, believing that if they did in fact find some evidence of a man's presence in the house, that they could cut uh, the recipient off of welfare. This rule was overturned uh, by lawyers who worked for the welfare rights movement in 1968. Um, there were also residency laws that were implemented in this period, residency laws which um, said that a woman, uh, if, if a woman moved into a state within the past year, she would not be eligible to receive welfare benefits. Uh, this law was overturned in 1969 Supreme Court decision. Um, and there was another important decision called Goldberg v. Kelly in 1972 which guaranteed recipients the right to due process. Okay, and what that meant is that if a recipient decided to cut a uh, if, if a caseworker decided to cut a recipient off of welfare, uh, the caseworker uh, the caseworker's decision could be challenged by the recipient, right, through a fair hearing process. But the recipient would not be cut off until that hearing had taken place. Um, so what welfare recipients wanted was to diminish the power of caseworkers, and they also wanted very clearly defined procedures. Okay? One of the things that the movement did is they developed what they called welfare rights handbooks um, that outlined for recipients every rule and regulation uh, that existed in the welfare department that empowered recipients to learn for themselves, what rights do I have? How many sheets am I entitled to? What does my caseworker have a right to ask me or not ask me? Um, so, so this idea of empowering recipients was extremely important to the movement. Um, it gave them information, so when they walked into a meeting with a caseworker, they were armed with information about uh, uh, what, what they could and could not get and how they might or might not be cut off welfare. The welfare rights movement, so the movement fought for things like right to privacy, right to mobility, and right to due process, which I think of as, as civil rights. But they also fought for economic justice, okay? The right to a basic minimum standard of living. And you have in your packet a copy of, if you could just pull it out for a moment, this document here. This was a minimum standards checklist that was um, created by 
a group here in New York City, the Citywide Coordinating Committee of Welfare Rights Groups, uh, in 1968. And just take a look at this for a moment and tell me um, what you see here and why and what this tells us about the welfare rights movement. So what is this for? A request for clothing items, yes. It absolutely is a request for clothing, for clothing items. And what do you, I mean, why is it broken down like this? The cost, right, so it outlines the cost for each item. Uh, a boy's winter coat costs different from a man's winter coat, for example. Welfare departments had very, very clear guidelines on what recipients were entitled to. Okay, they had to develop those guidelines in order to figure out sort of what a basic minimum standard of living was. So for example, a family might be entitled to three pairs of shoes for each child, one bed per person, five plates in a household of five people, two cooking pots, right? Um, and all of those were, were, were outlined in welfare department regulations. Prior to the 1960s, welfare recipients didn't even know this. They had no idea what they were entitled to. They had no idea that, uh, that the welfare department said that they were entitled to request money for a telephone, for example. A lot of recipients didn't have telephones. So by getting access to welfare department regulations, creating their own handbooks, welfare recipients began to learn what they were entitled to from the welfare department. And this became a very important organizing strategy. So what welfare rights organizations did is they developed these checklists. They handed them out to welfare recipients, often in uh, the line in the welfare office, right? Um, and they would recruit people and say, well, listen, actually, the welfare department says that if you have uh, a, a child who's under six years old, you're entitled to three dresses or suits for that child. The recipient would know nothing about it. They would come to a welfare rights meeting. Each recipient would fill out this form, and they would take it in mass to the welfare department. You might have 100 recipients who come together with their application to hand into the head of the welfare department and say, listen, your regulations say that we are entitled to all of these things, and I don't have them. Uh, so I want them, and I want them now. And with a face with 100 recipients, sometimes the caseworkers and the welfare directors gave in. Sometimes they didn't, and if they didn't, it would often result in a sit-in. So recipients would simply sit in the welfare office, sometimes for days, until um, the welfare uh, officials gave them the money for their, what they called special grants. They were allowed to get special grants for these, for these items. Um, so raising welfare recipients up to this basic minimum standard was a central component of the welfare rights movement. I wanna um, also talk about uh, welfare politics and feminism. The standard civil rights movement narrative that I mentioned at the beginning uh, sees movements like the women's movement, the student movement, the anti-poverty movement emerging out of the civil rights movement in the early 60s. And it sees these movements as somewhat distinct. They cooperated, right? But they were organizing in parallel arenas, right? Mexican Americans, farm workers, Native Americans. They all fought for their rights in very similar but distinct ways. Is there anything wrong with that picture? It's better to combine all of them and you have more power. OK, so you see those movements as being splintered, OK and perhaps competing against one another to a degree. 
Is there anything else wrong with that picture of seeing women's rights, for example, emerging out of the civil rights movement? Yes. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it dichotomizes race, class, and gender in a way that's absolutely artificial and doesn't reflect real life. As you know, there were women involved in the civil rights movement, <laughs> right? Um, and so uh, the history of social protest in this period was much more complicated than simply Mexican-Americans, women, poor people, uh, and black people organizing for their rights. Um, in fact, there was a lot of overlap. There was discussions about gender equality, about feminism within the Mexican-American movement. Uh, there were discussions about race within the women's movement. Uh, there were discussions about race within the anti-poverty movement. Um, and so I think it's much more interesting to think about the way in which those uh, ideological categories overlap, right? Um, and permeated many of the, of the social and political struggles of this period. You have another document, uh, which is an article by Johnny Tillman. If you could just pull that out for a moment. I don't know if people had a chance to read this or look at it or skim it or anything. Maybe you could just read the first uh, line, the first paragraph, actually. What does that first paragraph um, tell us about Johnny Tillman and welfare rights? A lot of different women could be on welfare, right? Um, She's, she's talking about welfare and the dehumanizing nature of welfare, right? How she just becomes a statistic in anti-poverty work. Um, it also suggests the title of this article, as you can see, is called Welfare is a Woman's Issue, right? This was published in 1972 in the premier issue of Ms. Magazine. And I don't know what kind of image you have in Ms. Magazine. I actually write for Ms. Magazine, so I'm not dissing Ms. Magazine. But the image that we often have of Ms. Magazine is that um, it was a middle-class woman's magazine, right? It dealt with white middle-class issues. Um, and I think it's more complicated than that. But I want to get back to that first paragraph. I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, I'm a poor woman, I'm a fat woman, I'm a middle-aged woman, and I'm on welfare. I just love that opening. <laughs> I do, because to me, it, it shows me Johnny Tillman's multiple identity. You can't categorize her. <laughs> You can't categorize her as a welfare recipient. You cannot just categorize her as a woman. You have to look at the fact that she's fat, she's poor, she's middle-aged. She has all of these multiple identities. And I think in so many ways that kind of sums up the welfare rights, not just the welfare rights, but all the larger point I'm making about the complexity of identity and the way we need to integrate race, class, and gender, as well as disability and, and sexuality, is that people cannot be pigeonholed as either being poor or being women or being African-American, that we all, regardless of our race or class background, have multiple identities. And Johnny Tillman certainly did. She was a complex human being who we could put into many different uh, boxes, if you will, um, of social movement in this period. Um, so Johnny Tillman writes this article in 1972. It's published in Ms. Magazine. Um, and her claim is really that welfare is a woman's issue. The vast majority of women's activists in the early 70s didn't believe that and didn't see that. And I give credit to Ms. Magazine for publishing this article. Um, because 
fundamentally, and if you read through the, it's a wonderful article, I think it's a wonderful teaching tool also, if you can use it in your classrooms if your students are at that level, because it helps us think about the way in which we understand welfare as a gendered program, right? Welfare is a program that's underfunded because it assists women, right? The way in which there are presumptions about male support built into the welfare program, and the way in which the program is racialized. So I think it's important that Tillman wrote this article. I think it's important that it was published in Ms. Magazine because women in the welfare rights movement are not usually considered a part of the women's movement. Okay, when we think about women's organizing in the 60s, we might think about now, we might think about cultural feminists, we might think about radical feminists. We don't often think about um, welfare rights activists. Uh, but welfare rights activists were um, simultaneously advocates of black power, of economic justice, and of women's rights. Okay? They pushed for personal autonomy, they wanted reproductive rights, and most importantly, they wanted to be able to raise their children with economic support from the state. But as with women who were involved in uh, the black freedom movement, I see welfare rights activists not only as contributors to feminism or supporters of feminism, um, but uh, I see them helping to define the meaning of women's liberation. Um, so women in the welfare rights movement had a very different notion about women's rights and women's empowerment than other feminists of this period, largely because of their race and class background. And perhaps the best example of this, as I'm sorry, I forgot your name in the back there, just mentioned about their position around work. Okay? If most feminists in this uh, period advocated job opportunities and advocated freedom from the shackles of domestic responsibility, women in the welfare rights movement wanted the option to be able to stay home uh, and take care of their children without having to work. For many poor women, being full-time mothers was a privilege, uh, one that they had all too often been denied, mainly because of economic necessity or because of welfare regulations that required them to work. So this idea of the right to motherhood was part of a larger platform that the welfare rights movement used to craft a distinctive brand of feminism. I think the welfare rights movement can also help us uh, rethink the nature of black power. Okay. We often think of uh, the black, this is the image we often associate with the black power movement, right? Bobby Seale and Huey Newton with their guns. Um, but women in the welfare rights movement, I think, were also advocates of black power. And Johnny Tillman called herself a black power right. She, but she claimed welfare and motherhood in terms of self-determination, in terms of autonomy, and in terms of black power. I'm actually going to skip that last point so we can have time for discussion. I'm going to talk a little bit about the politics of, I'll just say very briefly, the politics of the late 60s. Again, we think of this as a moment of polarization, left and right were uh, getting more and more extreme in their political views. I think if you, if you actually look at the debate around uh, a guaranteed income plan, which was NWRO's main goal, okay, uh, Republican Richard Nixon actually proposed a family assistance plan, which was very similar to NWRO's guaranteed income plan. 
1969. And this was a basic minimum income below which no family in this country would fall below. Okay? And I think it's astounding that Nixon proposed this. Um, there were differences, of course, in what NWRO advocated and what Nixon advocated, but nevertheless, they were both agreeing that, in fact, people in this sh country should not go hungry. They deserve some kind of federal minimum uh, economic support. So just to sum up, um, I think the welfare rights movement provides uh, an important example of ordinary people, of relatively powerless people, and their impact on public policy and the direction of social change. As with other black freedom movement studies, it extends the chronology of the struggle earlier into the late 50s and well into the 1970s. Um, so it was a struggle for economic justice that did not just grow out of the frustration of the mid-1960s. It provides a complex picture of the struggle for black freedom when it integrates gender and class into that framework. Welfare rights activists demanded the right to a basic minimum income, but they saw the struggle for racial equality and women's liberation as integrally tied to their anti-poverty campaigns. Black freedom for them meant economic security, personal autonomy, and the right to be able to stay home and raise their children. Consequently, these poor black women on welfare, I think, offer us um, a richer and more nuanced perspective of black freedom. They were not simply supporters in a male-led movement, but they crafted a very, very distinctive um, ideological and political platform. Thank you.